I'm excited today. We are continuing our uh, series that we started last week. We're diving into Jesus's words when he said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, and if you remain in me or if you abide in me and I remain in you, you will bear fruit. He said, you'll bear much fruit. And then a few years later, after Jesus said this, the Apostle Paul explained this. He went a little deeper and it helped unpack what this fruit looks like when it's lived out. And to the Galatians, he said, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Last week, we talked about love. And uh, this week, I want to look at the second word in this list of virtues here, joy, joy. How many of you could stand with some more joy? Amen. Joy. It's, it's one of these things, we've talked about joy before, but it's, it's such an odd subject for some folks. Joy is often misunderstood. It's often underestimated. Sometimes it just becomes sort of this ephemeral sort of Hallmark Cardi type of thing that we think, well, maybe I'm just not meant to live with joy. But as we're going to find out, joy is essential. And joy and love in the scriptures always seem to work together. There's always like this connection between just a few verses down from Jesus telling us that he's the vine and we're the branches. He says this, I've told you these things. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy it's important to God. Joy is something important. He said, I've told you all this stuff so that you can have joy. And as the church, that's you and me, we have been called by God to be people marked with joy. The apostle Peter says this, we rejoice with joy. I love, that's a, that's a beautiful little redundancy there, right? Rejoice with joy. And what kind of joy? It's inexpressible. I can't even put it into words. Full of glory. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul puts it pretty, about as succinctly as you can, rejoice always. Just rejoice always, right? Two words. In Philippians 4, he goes a little deeper into it. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say it again, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Joy matters. You were meant to live with joy, okay? You were meant to live with joy. And so we have to choose. We have a choice before us to either be people of joy or to just sort of float along with the crowd around us and be people of fear and rage like the rest of the mob, right? We have this choice before us. In the first century, one of the scandalous things about the church, the early church, in the mind of that average Roman citizen, when they looked at this brand new group of people that were floating around called Christians, what was truly weird about this sect called Christians was their apparently absurd joy. There's a lot of writings about this. You, you can read from the time period, the writings from various Roman officials and historians and poets. They talk about how crazy it is that even though these Christians are subjected to just horrible state-sponsored persecution. These people like, seem to not have enough sense not to be joyful. It's like, it's like even when they're being persecuted, they're joyful. The writer of Hebrews points this out, and he's encouraging the early Christians, and he's reminding them of how they even joyfully accept uh, the confiscation of their property. During some of these persecutions in Rome, the government would come and just take away their stuff. And apparently these early Christians were like, praise the Lord, hallelujah, take it. We're good, right? I mean, what are you going to do with people like this? 
that just take the confiscation of their stuff, right? Who joyfully responds to the stealing of everything they own? And, they, and, and these Christians would say they were joyful because it meant they could suffer shame along with Jesus Christ. This is, this is the early church. And this joy of theirs, this joy wasn't just some kind of superficial happiness. It wasn't a manufactured hype, right? They didn't have to like, all right, let's, let's all, you know, because the, the smoke and the light show was really good. This wasn't manufactured. It was a deep and abiding joy for them. They were marked with joy. It was a Christian characteristic. When Paul writes to the, the Philippians, his letter to the Philippians around, around the year 80, 62, Paul is writing from a Roman prison. This is one of the prison letters, the Philippians. And this is where we're going to be today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn into there. Uh, we're going to park here most of the time. And not only is Paul in prison when he writes this, he's awaiting sentencing. He's on trial for a capital crime. In other words, he's basically waiting to be sentenced to death. And he writes to the church in Philippi, and it is Paul's most joyful letter of all the letters in the New Testament. It is his most joyful. He speaks of joy 14 times in this little letter. Now that's kind of weird, right? Let's just, I mean, let's just admit it. A letter from death row and it's filled with joy. There's no indication of anger. He's not bitter in this letter. He's not depressed. There's no fear. The Apostle Paul is overflowing with joy, even on death row in a Roman prison in the first century, which can't be a, a very fun place to be. Now, how can that be? How can these persecuted Christians have joy in the midst of their suffering? And notice right what Paul writes here. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. You understand the, the word Lord was a very loaded term in his day. Lord was a loaded term. It was a political term. It, it had a lot of meaning behind it. We don't use the word Lord so much today, right? We don't, we, we don't say, you know, did you, did you vote for Lord Byron, Biden or Lord uh, Trump? You know, we don't, we don't use the Lord when we refer to the governor. We don't use Lord. Even when we go before the judge, we say, Your Honor, but we don't say Lord Judge. You know, we don't, that's just not a word we use, right? But in his day, it was. And in fact, it was, it, was a, it, be, it was a word that belonged to the Caesar. Caesar is Lord was one of the most ubiquitous phrases of the day. It was a huge propaganda piece. It was stamped on the money. It was stamped all over everything, right? Caesar is Lord. It's the way people would greet each other. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord, right? It's just the way they would, it, people would say it everywhere. And Christians appropriated this phrase and said, no, 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 no. It doesn't belong to Caesar. It belongs to Jesus. Jesus Amen. is Lord, which, come on, that is the craziest thing to do, right? I mean, here's the emperor. There's the emperor. He, I mean, everybody can see he's sitting high on the throne. He's in the mighty city of Rome with all the trappings of glory. There's Caesar, all the authority of the known world, Caesar. And yet there's this sect of inexplicably joyful people going around saying this prophet from the podunk town of Nazareth who was crucified by the Roman government and not only has he been raised from the dead but he's lord over all the nations and they actually believe it they believe it so much so that you just can't wipe the smile off their face 
What a joy. This is, this is joy. And oh, my friends, can you imagine if we could recover this, this sense of joy today? Imagine the church today filled with joy. Instead of being angry, instead of being fearful, upset about culture or the government or other things that Jesus already told us, these things don't rule our lives, right? Because Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, not culture. Jesus, do we really believe that? Jesus is Lord, not the economy. Jesus is Lord, not the government, right? Jesus is Lord, not the Constitution or, or rights that were granted to you by some man or woman sitting on the throne of Rome or Washington, D.C. Jesus is Lord. Amen? We live under his reign, his rule. Do we? Right? And he's not only been raised from the dead, he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father, this Jesus, and he has been given dominion over the nations, the Bible says, and you and I are embodying his rule and his reign right now. That's the kingdom of God. We walk in that rule and reign. We're ambassadors of this kingdom. And this is why we are so full of joy. Because Jesus is Lord. This is where our joy comes from. Living in this sort of joy, it's not just a theoretical idea. This isn't just a pep talk, right? This is how the church lived in its first 300 years. Just, just like this. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. A verse or so later, he says this. I'm very excited because this is my very favorite passage in the whole, whole Bible. This is my favorite one. In verse 6, he says, do not be anxious about anything. Instead, in every situation, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. You understand what that means? That's peace that has no logical reason for being there. It surpasses understanding. So it's like people were going, you should not be at peace right now. I know, it's like it surpasses understanding. It'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See right here, scripture, God is giving you permission to be at peace, to have joy, even in the midst of your circumstances. He's given you permission. You don't feel bad about it, right? So I've been quoting this verse my whole life. Uh, it's my favorite passage, and it's not a cheap cliche either. Remember, this is written by a man on death row in a Roman dungeon, and he says, don't worry. Don't worry. Don't rage like the heathens do. Instead, what he says to do is pray, and we're going to talk a little bit about, more about prayer next week when we unpack the, the fruit of peace. But I'll say this as a little sneak peek. Learning how to pray is formative. It's formative to your soul. It'll shape your soul in the right way so that it is capable of receiving the peace of God. That peace that flows like a river. More on that next week. But here's why joy is so important. Here's why joy is so important, and yet so often misunderstood, so often underestimated. See, we live in a world that is so full of, of suffering, right? That's real. We don't downplay that. It's so full of injustice. It's so full of sorrow. It's full of anxiety and fear. And God is compassionate towards all of that. He says he is compassionate towards those things. But God is not worried, and God is not depressed, do you ever stop to remember that? Okay, God is not worried and depressed. God's not going, oh man, what are we going to do? Look at them, I don't know. I've tried everything. 
It's like everything's going wrong. I don't know what to do. God's not worried. God's not depressed. God is this eternal wellspring of of joy and peace. And and that joy, we're told, is actually generated within himself, in the Trinity itself, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And we are invited to participate and to share in that joy. Jesus said, may may you take pleasure in them as you take pleasure in me, as as I have pleased you and let them please you. We get to share in that joy. How cool is that? That joy that God has within himself. Now, the problem is, that today, much of the modern, in modern Christianity, we choose not to, or we don't know how to participate in this joy. Uh, in fact, it's an odd thing. Uh, the more natural prosperity and power that Christians enjoy in the world, in regions of the world, the more they have, it's like the, the less supernatural joy we seem able to tap into. It's so true. The more we look like the world in our rage and our anger and our fear. And yet, you can come with me. We can travel to some of those, the the poorest regions of the planet. You just saw some pictures of some of these places. Some of the poorest regions of the planet. And you will find Christians who aren't angry. They're not fearful. They're not cynical. They're not depressed. But they have tapped into this wellspring of Christ-like joy. These are Christians with very few possessions. They have very little power politically, like their vote means nothing, okay, if they have one. They have very little agency or say in what, you know, how the course of their lives are going to take or, you know, oh, I'm going to work really hard and be somebody in life. Like that is not even an option for, for many of these people. And yet they are some of the happiest people you'll meet. And here in the prosperous West, your average Christian has a mortgage, two cars, and is barely hanging on to the, because of the, the soul-sucking despair they feel day to day. Why is that? Why is that? The truth is that the church, and that includes you and me, it's not just in these other regions of the world, you and me, are, we are meant to be the most joyful people on the planet. Amen. We are regardless of what's happening around us. We're meant to be the most joyful people. And we have been entrusted with this joy, right? From the very first, when, when that angel came, came down into Bethlehem and, and said, fear not, behold, I bring you good news of joy, right? Which will be for all people. God is entrusting that joy to the church. And there's something about joy that we've forgotten. There's something about joy. Joy, and here's, here's something. Joy isn't an absence of problems. It's our weapon against evil. Right. It's not the absence of problems. It's our weapon against evil. It's not the absence of evil. But joy is a mighty weapon against evil. If you want to resist evil in the world, resist evil in the culture, you want to change hearts for the kingdom be joyful. Be joyful in the Lord. This is the, the thing, the trait of the early church that the average Roman just looked at and was like, what in the world is happening with these people, right? It was attractive. You want to see change happen in our culture? You want to see an end to turmoil and strife? Let's be the people of joy. Be the people of joy. And, and I don't mean like a, a naive kind of ignorant sort of stupid like you know, putting our fingers in our ears and not watching the news because it might make us sad or something like that. Like ignorant to people's suffering. That's not what we're talking about here. 
I mean being the people who declare Jesus is Lord. That's the good news, right? That's the gospel in three words. Jesus is Lord. And we rejoice in that. And that is a powerful resistance in the world, uh, resistance to evil in the world. Uh, This is a fun fact, I think. On the church calendar, you know, there's different seasons and there's different feasts and there's uh, some some, uh, fasts and things like that. There are days that are set aside on the liturgical calendar. And what I, one of the things I love about Christianity is there are more feasts than fasts. I can get into a religion that has more feasts than fasts, right? You have your feasts like, you know, you have your fasts, Ash Wednesday or something like that, but you have your feasts like Christmas and Easter, right? These are feast days. And uh, I, I, I like that. I like that. And did you know this, that feasting in Scripture, that feasting with a spirit of joy and gratitude is a kind of a spiritual warfare? It's true, right? I mean, we can sit down like Nehemiah says, and he says, like, we're going to eat the fat and drink the sweet. What does he say? And we're going to send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. In other words, invite the poor, people who have nothing in. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength, Right? So you can sit down to your big feast and they're like, what are you doing? And you're like, I'm resisting the devil. Hallelujah. Right? By choosing joy in the midst of a world that's full of rage and full of anger and depression and people lashing out at each other. And so we're going we're gonna to love the world. We're going to love the world. We talked about it last week. We're going to have compassion for the hurting. We're gonna, but we're not going to take the bait, you know, and, and rise and fight back when they yell at us. No, no, no. We're going to love others. And we're going to demonstrate the joy that is in Jesus by choosing to live in joy, right? That's, that's the hope in Jesus. We live in joy. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. Amen. That gives us joy. Jesus is Lord. Now, I'm not kidding. I believe feasts are, are, are a form of spiritual warfare. Amen. Especially breakfast. <laughs> breakfast. I'm a big breakfast guy. Many of you know. Amen. There's my friend. Yeah. It's biblical too. Look at this. In Psalm 30, it says, weeping may stay for the night, but joy comes in the morning, right? That, the Hebrew word is breakfast. Not really, <laughs> right? Fry up the bacon, get the migas together. Mm, come on, joy. Amen. That's the gospel according to Scott. All right. I'm gonna t- let's look at Romans. You can turn over there here to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, we said last week, the, the fruit of the Spirit... Of all the fruit of the Spirit, we have love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. This whole list can really be thought of, in one way, it can be thought of as an outflowing of that first one, love, right? It's an expression of that first love. So how is joy an expression of love? What do they have to do with each other? In Romans 8, 35, Paul asks this, it's kind of a rhetorical question. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword, or ISIS, or loan shooters, or activist judges, or politicians, who, who, Russian dictators, who shall separate us from the love of of God? And then he he even tries to play devil's advocate. He he quotes from Psalm 44. He says, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And then he gives an answer. And what's the answer? Shall these things separate us from the love of, of Christ? No. He says, no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen. Amen. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I want to talk about this phrase. 
for a few minutes here, more than conquerors. Because this is, I, I like this phrase and it's always fascinated me. I've studied out this phrase. I want to unpack it. We're more than conquerors. And what's interesting here is the scriptures are very clear. In the New Testament, we see this picture of the early church and we're told by the apostle, we are more than conquerors. And it's interesting how the church in the past, there are some historical dark periods where we've seen that and said, oh, we're more than conquerors and we've gone and done what? Conquer. <laughs> we haven't acted like we're more than conquerors. We've acted like we're just conquerors, right? But we, it says we are more than conquerors. We are not conquerors. Why are we not conquerors? Because we are crucified with Christ. Now keep, stay with me here. We're crucified with Christ. So we don't go forth and conquer because we're crucified with Christ. Neither are we victims. Why are we not victims? Because we're risen with Christ. See, we serve a crucified and risen Savior. So we're not conquerors because we're crucified with Christ. We're not victims because we're risen with Christ. Stay with me. This is, this is going to be really good. At least I think it's really great. I really liked this. So if we're, not, if we're not conquerors and we're not victims, what are we? We're the adopted children of God, right? We're the baptized. We're those people who have been baptized into the, into the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Scripture is very clear about this. The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We are the rescued, right? And this was very, very real to the early church. I want it to become real to us. We are not conquerors. We are not victims. So what's our identity? Uh, I like the way uh, pastor and author Brian Zahn, he, wrote, he writes this. He said, as the church, we do not find our identity in the conquest ideology of the right. That's the conservative temptation. And we do not find our identity in the victim mentality of the left. It's the liberal temptation. Now, this is interesting. I think that the conquest ideology, this is where you get some of these ideas. Just kind of think of our culture in general. This is where you get these ideas of like manifest destiny right? Uh, these ideas where you have special divine rights that nobody else has, uh, and it just sort of, it, it allows you, it justifies subjecting other people to your will, right? God just loves us best, so it's ours. We're going to take that, right? Uh, it's also, it, it gives to, to a very individualistic uh, mindset, every man for himself, right? That's this conquest ideology. And then you have this victim mentality, and this is where you get this sort of hyper-political correctness that you often see today. And, and it's used as a tool of manipulation, isn't it? To kind of make you feel shame and guilt and all this kind of stuff. And you have this cancel culture and all this sort of thing that we, everybody talks about that. But we don't find our identity in these ideologies. Amen? Amen. We, we keep saying that in here. Well, we are something different, Right? We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. So we don't hitch our wagon to the right or the left. No, 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 no. We are ambassadors of Christ. Amen? He says, we find our identity in the crucified and risen Christ. I like the way he said that. The crucified and risen Christ. And by the way, see, you can't divide those two parts of Jesus. Those two facets of Jesus. He is the crucified. The Apostle Paul said that, I, I, I preach Christ and him crucified. And he is the resurrected, right? We don't just leave him on the cross. He's the resurrected one. And so we miss the boat 
in, in, in you know, some of our little religious ideologies, if we celebrate one without the other, we only celebrate one or the other, we serve Jesus as Lord, the crucified, risen Savior. The crucified, risen Savior. That's why in the book of Revelations, you go all the way to the book, into the, the Bible, this picture of Jesus, what is it? It's, it describes him as this victorious lamb who has defeated the beasts of empire. And this lamb is always depicted as having been slaughtered and yet standing. He's a bloodied lamb, and yet he is standing, right? So we are not conquerors because we choose to love our neighbors as ourself. Now think about that. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you don't go conquer your neighbor. We're not called to make other people suffer. That's what conquerors always do. We're called to be healers in the earth, right? So how can the healers be conquerors? And we're not victims either because what we choose to love and forgive our enemies, which liberates you from playing the role of victim. So the moment someone mistreats you, if you forgive them, in that moment, you are no longer playing the role of victim. You become something else. You become more than a conqueror the moment you forgive that person who hurt you. And because we're not victims, we're not defined by the sins of other people. Amen. Amen? Bad things may have happened to you. Not saying it didn't. But we're not defined by that. We're not defined by what others have done to us. If you buy that lie that, that you have to be a victim, then that becomes your story. That is your story, and you were defined by this, that, as the one that has had this thing happen to them, right? And all of this, see, is tied to our joy. This is tied to our joy because we live in a different story. The Bible shows us a different story that we live. We live and preach a different story than the world has. Our story is the gospel story of Jesus Christ, which is the good news. We're called to spread this good news far and wide, right? The only stories the world has, it only knows this sort of binary thing, right? The story says you're either a conqueror or you're a victim, right? So, you know, make sure you're on the winning side. That's the world's story. And, and we are neither. We're neither because Jesus Christ forges for us a third way, a new way. See, our joy rises from our salvation, now get this. See, the gospel means we are saved not only from our sins, we are saved from the whole system. Amen. We are saved from that whole scale of how do I measure how happy I am today, whether I'm the conqueror or the victim. Am I in the 2% or am I in like below poverty level? How, how do I measure myself? Right? Verse 38 declares, nothing can steal God's love for you. Nothing can steal. That means your joy is secure in that. Your joy is secure. Your joy isn't dependent on if you've won or lost. If you were the conqueror or the victim. Because you're neither. You're the baptized. You're the rescued. You're the restored. You're the adopted. We are the adopted sons and daughters of a king. Right, the living God. We are loved by our Father. Amen. We are followers of the crucified and victorious Lamb of God. And it is really, it's only when you allow yourself to slip back into those old categories of conqueror and victim, and you measure yourself by, am I a winner or a loser here? You risk losing your joy. Then your joy is at risk. 
Because you are more than either of those things. You are more than either of those things. I'm telling you, following Jesus is, it means entering into a whole new way of being human. It really does. Think about the apostles for a second. You think about the story of the apostles. What did they do? Now, on one hand, they, they conquered the world, right? I mean, they spread, even the world itself in Acts 17, the empire said of them, these who have turned the world upside down have come here also, right? They, they conquered the world, but they did no harm. They never harmed anybody. And they were almost all, by the way, martyrs in the end. So do we consider any of them victims? Do we say, Paul, yeah, what a victim. He was a victim of the system. No. Were Peter and Paul victims because they were killed by Nero? No way, right? We call our sons Peter and Paul. We, we named the dog Nero, right? They weren't victims. They're heroes. The apostles are never victims. They were Christ-like, which is to say they were Christian. They were Christians. And I believe one of the most profound tools that we have, that I have personally has been a blessing to me, that we, we, as we seek to understand what it means to be a Christian today, one of the things I think we can do is, is rediscover the stories of some of the early Christian martyrs. And the early Christian martyrs, these are important stories for us. These are not stories to make us feel sad or to bum us out or something like that. These are stories to inspire us. That's why these stories are passed down. You know, ours is a, have you heard their term, a received faith? Ours is a received faith, meaning someone told you about Jesus. And someone told that person about Jesus. And someone told that person about Jesus, right? We don't get to just make up Christianity. None of us get to just make it up uh, as we go along. And we don't even trace our roots back, you know, like 40 years to some 20th century revival. No, no, no. We trace our faith all the way back to a virgin birth, to a kingdom that was, that was proclaimed by Jesus, to Christ crucified and then risen and then ascended, to the Holy Spirit poured out on Pentecost. Amen. The church the church that was birthed that day, right? There's this whole rich history. And some of the most formative years of the church are in these, these years of martyrdom. And I think it's good for us to recover these stories, not to mourn, not to be sad, but to be inspired by their joy. And I'm going to tell you one of these stories today to, to kind of sum up this sermon on joy today. Uh, one, it's one of my favorite ones. I'll tell you one of my favorite ones. And it's the story of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a second century bishop, just meaning he was kind of like pastor over a whole city of churches. Um, he was uh, over a, a, uh, this, in the city of Smyrna, which is modern-day Turkey. Now, what, here's what's really cool about Polycarp. Second century AD, he was a disciple, get this, an actual disciple of John, like John the Beloved, like Peter, James, and John, John. He was a disciple of his in person, like one degree of separation there. And so John is this old man, is this old disciple who walked with Jesus, who like still got Jesus all over him. He's, he's teaching one of his disciples is Polycarp. And so Polycarp is learning from him. Can you imagine how cool that would have been, like to be following around John? And so, uh, in fact, they believe it was John who ordained Polycarp, laid hands and ordained him as, as pastor of the, these churches over Smyrna. That's pretty awesome. And so it's also one of the reasons why uh, Polycarp was greatly revered as a, as a teacher and a church leader, because he had this such, such a personal, unbroken connection. In the second century, 
uh, Polycarp is grown. He's become an old man. And persecution against the Christians breaks out in the eastern part of the empire. And the, there's this cult of emperor worship that's really taken root. And it is on the rise. And in, in the year 155, Stadius Quadratus, he's the governor of this, over this region of the empire. He becomes just dedicated to the official policy of eradicating this sect called Christians. And so soldiers are sent to Polycarp's house there in Smyrna, the bishop of the church. They're sent there to arrest him. He's 86 years old. So you got to picture this. 86-year-old Polycarp. He answers the door. There's the soldiers. This is all very well documented. And uh, the soldiers arrive and they say, you're under arrest. You've got to come back with us. You're required to go stand before Governor Stadius. And Polycarp says, okay, that's fine. But you know what? It's dinner time. Why don't you, why don't you boys come in? Y'all look hungry. Let me make you some food. So he makes them a meal and they, they eat the meal and they eat it together. And then he says, you know what? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with you guys. Will you just give me an hour to pray? Kind of prepare my soul. And they said, sure, sure, old man, go ahead. So he goes upstairs and he prays for an hour and he prays for two hours. And they're listening to him. And the soldiers, they said, are just so inspired by the words that are said. Just the, the glory and the peace that is just coming from him. And they all feel really awkward about having to like, because they realize this is, this is like an 86. You know, they were probably told like, this is some revolutionary, you know, who's really dangerous. Watch out, watch your back. And they realize this guy isn't dangerous, you know. But so they feel bad about having to, having to arrest him. But um, finally, after, after all this prayer, they wait for him. He comes down. And they, he puts on his coat, they leave. He's brought before the governor. The next day, he's brought into the arena, you know, like Braveheart. This is, this, he's brought into the arena where they have the blood games with the beasts and the gladiators and all that kind of stuff. And he's standing in the arena. And up there is Governor Stadius up on his seat of honor in the Colosseum. And the governor says, I call upon you to swear allegiance to Caesar and renounce or denounce the atheists. And the atheists was the word that the Romans called Christians. They called them the atheists. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because they didn't believe in the Roman gods. They didn't believe in the Roman gods, so they must be atheists. And so that's, that's kind of funny. But, um, and it wasn't just like Rome, that they were just so offended, like they didn't believe in, in the gods. See, the thing was, the Roman gods were, they were the ones who, by which the, the Caesar derived his power, right? So you have to allow Caesar and his rule to happen because the gods have given him his power. And so you're supposed to believe in the gods in order to declare Caesar is Lord. And these people wouldn't even declare that, Right? And so they weren't viewed as, as sufficiently patriotic enough. So they were called the atheists. So the governor tells Polycarp he's got to swear allegiance to Caesar, denounce the atheists, deny Christ. Polycarp says, I'm not going to do that. And, and, and the governor says, you don't understand. I, I'm gonna br I could bring out wild beasts right now to just tear you apart. Polycarp, Polycarp goes, yeah, I'm sure you can. And the governor gets, he's getting angrier and angrier. And he says, you know what? Forget the beast. I'm going to burn you alive at the stake. And Polycarp says, do what you got to do. And he says, look, finally the governor just says, just say it once. Just say it once. All you have to do is just say, Caesar is Lord. Denounce Christ once and I will let you go free. And Polycarp, famous quote, he says, for 86 years I have served Christ and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? 
And it's well documented. Polycarp goes joyfully singing hymns of praise to the stake where he's burned alive. And witnesses say that even as the, his body was being burned and the smoke rose, they said that the smell of frankincense filled the arena. And Polycarp died rejoicing in the Lord. He's more than a conqueror, right? He's much more than a victim. He was a Christian. He was a Christian. So friends, we are the children of God. We're not being asked to risk our life, are we? We're not being asked to go stand and get our bodies burned. Most of us will never have to truly put our life, our physical life on the line to declare Jesus as Lord. But we are learning how to love like God. And because Jesus is Lord, we can be full of joy. No matter what is happening to us, we can be full of joy. So you say, okay, pastor, how do we do this? How do we have this joy? How does this become a real fruit of the Spirit in my life that's being cultivated in me? I don't want it to just be some cliche, you know, we talk about today and I leave and it doesn't really matter. I don't want it some kind of, you know, I don't want a bumper sticker joy. I don't want some kind of flighty sense of happiness that disappears as soon as something happens to me out in the parking lot. How does joy become a reality that takes root in my soul and overflows even to other people, no matter what happens? The writer of Hebrews tells us this. He says, look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of joy set before him, for the sake of joy set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame. To be crucified was the, uh, the ultimate public humiliation. When they talk about the shame, the scandalous shame of the cross, it was the ultimate humiliation. On top of the torture, you were humiliated. And Jesus said, I just disregard that. Because he's looking to the joy that's set before him. And what happened? He has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. I believe that. I believe that Jesus is Lord. And I have to, I'll admit, I have to remind myself. Sometimes daily, I have to remind myself because bad stuff happens. Suffering happens. I have to remind myself, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord even in this. Jesus is Lord, right? And I believe that Jesus endured the cross by looking at the joy that he now possesses when he looks at you. Do you know that Jesus looks at you and the Bible says it makes him sing over you? He sings over you. You give him joy. He loves you that much. Because Jesus is Lord, and because he has revealed the love of the Father for us, the love of the Father, this is God's unquenchable, unconditional, unrelenting, never-ending joy, full and complete, perfect. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. Because of this, we can afford to be joyful. Amen. In the midst of an age of anger and rage, we can be a joyful people. And it's not just for you. Remember, it's a blessing to the world. We're entrusted with this joy to be a testimony to the world. Now, we have a choice. We really do have a choice. We can have hearts of joy. 
We can be the people of joy in this world that needs it so bad, that needs joy so badly. Or we can not. We can just act like the world. And, and believe me, I, I know you, you probably, you know, hear the, the news and watch the, the polls just as much as I do. We can just throw up our hands and be complicit into the whole thing burning down. Just join in the rage and the anger and the fear. But I don't think we have to be. We can be the church that helps the whole world take a different course. We really can. We can be the people, at least the people in our lives, the people that we touch, we can help be the change. We can help people change their souls. We can help turn their souls towards the kingdom of God. We have that choice before us. The whole church has this choice. The Lord Jesus Christ prepares a table for us in the, in the midst of our enemies. The psalmist says that. In the midst of the enemies, he makes you a table. He sets before you. He invites you to eat the fat and drink the wine and invite those who don't have anything to come along with you and sit with you. And he says, don't despair, be joyful, because in the midst of your greatest weakness, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord. Lord, we want to partner with you today. We want to partner with what your Spirit is doing in us. This fruit that you're growing inside us, Lord, so that we can begin to see the joy of Jesus growing inside us from the inside out. Grow it inside us, Lord God. And we don't want some kind of superficial joy, Lord, that we got to manufacture. It's not a joy where we're pretending everything's okay when it really feels like everything's falling apart. But we thank you, Lord God, for this deep and abiding joy that wells up within us, that can't be touched by anything circumstantial, Lord. Father, we're, we're desperate for a joy that overflows, that it becomes a blessing to other people around us, Lord. It becomes a witness to the world of the hope that you bring. Give us this joy that is a weapon against the darkness, Lord God. Open our eyes to what it means to be more than conquerors, not victims, not victimizers, but healers and hope bringers. May that be us, Lord. May that be us at Generations Church. Begin it right here, Lord God, and may it spread across the land. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who may be in grief because of loss. And we pray for the joy that comes in the morning. We pray for them. We lift them up. Help us to be strength to them. For those, Lord God, who are here among us, who, who have souls that are ravaged by real clinical depression, Father God, we ask for healing. Not condemnation, but healing and hope, Father. And Lord, for all of us, we pray for your mercy and your grace. We pray this in the name of the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask our prayer partners to come forward at this time. If you're here today and there's anything that you need prayer for, ask these guys to come to come forward and let these guys pray with you. Whatever's going on with your life, whether it's a physical need you have, financial need, relational, whatever it is, these guys would love to pray with you in faith. And if you want to say yes to Jesus today, if you want to experience the joy of salvation today, that joy inexpressible that you can't even put words to, if you're like, man, I feel something in me, just I need that. I want, I want to know that sort of joy of the Lord. I invite you to come forward and let these guys pray with you. They can lead you in that prayer and start you on that beautiful, beautiful journey, help you take that next right step. There, and if you have prayer requests, you can also send it to us. There's different ways to send us your prayer requests. And we have a whole prayer team that would love to pray with you. And will you stand to your feet with me? My friends, let me bless you. 
May the love of the Father, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, may the joy of the Lord be your strength in this day that we're living. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye.